0: Good morning. It's so excited to be here. I hope you're excited to be here. Um, take, take, don't take for granted there are congregations all over the world today who are meeting in private and in homes and in hiding, who don't have the freedoms that we have to assemble openly and discuss our faith so openly. So I want to I pr- have a time of prayer. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for what's happening in Israel right now. Um, I, I have a lot of opportunities to do mission work been all over the world, and I can tell you that many places and believers around the world don't have many of the privileges we have. I can promise you they don't have this beautiful facility y'all have. This place is amazing. So let let me pray for us, and let me pray for them. God, I thank you so much. Thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done for us, for our salvation, for those of us that are followers of Christ, that are disciples of Jesus. God, I thank you for your grace and your goodness and God, I thank you for what you have given us individually in our salvations, cumulatively in the church and worldwide as the church. God, I thank you for your word and completion. God, I pray for Israel. God, you have said throughout prophecy, throughout the Old Testament, and even into Revelation that you will not abandon Israel, that your work with Israel is not done. And so, God, I pray for both the hostilities that are occurring there right now and also, more than anything, the salvation of your chosen people. God, I pray that... I know that you have not abandoned them. God, I know it because you are a God of your word and it says it in your word. God, you cannot break promises. You cannot break covenants. And so God, I pray for Israel and I pray for that work. Having friends that have been there recently, working on projects there, God, I know that you are moving in amazing ways both in Israel and in Palestine. Uh, this horrible atrocities that are happening right now, God, are not really, it's the enemy, it's rebuttal to the great work that you have going on. And your work is great. And if the devil's in the details, then you are there more so. You are there working in the lives of these people. So, God, I pray for peace. And I pray for other congregations that are meeting throughout this country and throughout the world today, in different time zones. Some of them have already met because it is their Sunday, and some of them have not yet because Sunday has not come for them yet. God, I pray as they meet and assemble to worship you. Your hand will be upon us that we would dive into your word. We would be known for our love for one another and for our commitment to your callings. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My name is Kurt Edgerton. I'm from First Baptist Beaumont. Um, I get to do, my job title is so broad, like as many people in ministry, that it would be hard to tell you what I do. But the truth is, I get to be involved in personal disciple making. I get to help our congregations and other congregations embrace personal disciple making through an organization that we, a nonprofit that we have called Disciple Making Disciples. I've been privileged to work on a couple of projects that involve writing books that are being taught at Liberty University. I didn't write them, I I didn't even get to co-author, but I get to work with them. Curriculums for personal disciple making and video production and apps and websites and I'm somewhere between a preacher and a tech nerd. And I live in that weird juxtaposed space. I told them this morning that I'm probably the only guy that's ever preached here that pays attention to the camera angles, mutes their own microphone, and is curious what the lighting lighting's doing. So we're going to be, I hope that you have a Bible with you. In the tech age, maybe you'll have the glow of a screen. Um, but we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. So I would love to hear the sound of those pages get there. We need to be a people of the word. No matter what local congregation we're in, we should be known By that, that we are a people of God's word. We should be known by our love for one another and our commitment to the text of God's word. So let's go ahead and dive in. There's a lot to read. I'm going to read straight through it and then we're going to just break it down bit by bit. In verse 22, chapter 8, verse 22, it said, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a man who was blind to Jesus, and begged him to touch him taking the man who was blind by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting in his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him, and he sent to his, sorry, and and he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. 27, it says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And he hold him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise from the dead. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's purpose, but on man's. Let's break this down. There's some very interesting things that happen here. We have, the, we have the Gospels, we have the Synoptic Gospels, those that are very, very similar in account, and then we have Mark. And Mark is a non-Synoptic Gospel, and hear this very clearly. There are no contradictions in Scripture. None. If you harmonize the Gospels together, people will say, well, Matthew says this and Mark says this. It doesn't say that they're counter to one another. Matthew's written to the Jews. The predominant audience was a Jewish audience. Why does it start with genealogy? A, a Gentile does not care about the genealogy of Christ, not nearly as much as a Jew would. It's very important to them. So knowing who the book is written towards, the main audience, changes a bit how we study it. Matthew gives us an account of this. We call it the Great Confession. Mark gives us an account of this. And Luke gives us an account of this. And they're not in contra- contradiction to one another. They are different details to different audiences. It doesn't say Jesus didn't say these things. Um, The Bible is not a walking account of every moment of Jesus' life. And though, honestly, I kind of wish it was sometimes. I would love to have more text because I've read it so many times and God speaks through it so immensely. But he didn't give us everything we wanted. He gave us everything we needed. Not to get lost in the details of things. There's tons of examples we don't have of, you know, Jesus had to have done way more ministry than the accounts we have in the text of Scripture. There are whole days, weeks that we don't have, and it's because it's not inherently important to us. So follow along with me and Mark, and, and think this through. To to grasp what's really happening here, you have to get a hold of some some history, some before. We shouldn't look to to be those uh, we shouldn't be those Facebook memers who drop like a verse out of context, and you're like that doesn't apply to you. I was on I was on social media the other day. I was scrolling. Somebody had a, 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 a David and Goliath. And they had made a quote as if like God was going to slay their enemies. And I was thinking, well, that's called a homicide. You know, if, you're, if your Goliath is your boss and he's mean to you, you probably shouldn't get a slingshot and go after him. That's bad. And I was thinking that, like, that's really out of context. The point of David and Goliath is not that Goliath had cursed Saul. Saul was a horrible king. It was not that he had even cursed the people of Israel. Who really cares? People of Israel showed their lack of faith every time they turned around. It's that he had cursed God. The point was he had cursed God, and God delivered that giant to David. And so we should read scripture in the context of its surrounding text, not just to pluck it out and look at one little thing and then move on. And so if you do that, if you look closely at this, what you'll see is a very interesting fact in Mark. Jesus has just fed the 4,000 plus he has fed a ton of. I've never, I've never been, and this would be. We have an event that I'm on staff with called Hot Hearts. I don't know if y'all do it. Y'all are a little bit away, but it, we basically fill up Ford Park full of teenagers. It's pure chaos. I'm on staff. I run media and production set and photography, and it is a just. It is a chaos factor. Kids everywhere. Vendors all over the place. And there's a roughly about 3,500 people in Ford Park when we do Hot Hearts. Now, imagine 4,000 men, not counting women and children. That is a lot of people. You have a very large, beautiful worship center, and that would fill you up times three, probably. There wouldn't be room for everybody. You'd have to bust the windows and the doors out. And Jesus feeds them with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And it's interesting because then they leave there. This is previous to the text we just read. They leave there, and they are going, and Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of the leaven of the religious leaders. And his disciples begin to get scared because they didn't bring any bread with them. And that's a great irony because he literally just fed 4, 5, 6,000 people and they're worried about not having bread with them. And it's very easy for us in our comfortability to judge Jesus' first disciples. One, here's the thing. They didn't have a completed text of scripture. We do. The second is they didn't have the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As a believer, you do. And the other thing is we do exactly the same thing every time we turn around. God has provided for us, and then we're like, there's no way, woe is me, what am I going to do? And God's like, how many times do I have to provide for you for you to get it that, that I'm going to provide for you? I think if there's a have had that moment as a parent or as a discipler, um, I'm discipling two college guys right now. And I normally would not disciple college guys. I normally do dis- caller guys, salespeople, managers. That's kind of normally my, my, my genre of men that I, I disciple, and then these two college men, college boys, come to me and say, disciple me, and I said, well, I don't get an out, I guess you have to if they, have. I mean, I tried to find an out, I couldn't find one, trying to get these guys to show up on time, do their homework, like it is, but, but here's the thing, they woke up at 5 a.m. for a month and a half and met online, because one of them took a new job at an encampment, so that's how passionate they were about it. It was very important to them, but the, the, the thing, the point I'm making is that, like, we, we are in a state of the church to which we kind of find ourselves just like this. I have these college guys, and they do the dumbest things sometimes. I kind of do this forehead slap. You mean there's a Sunday school teacher, and they're, like, they're answering all the questions, and they're not just giving you, like, that blatant Jesus answer? Because we all know that's a punchline, right? Like, in, in Christendom, you can ask a question, and the answer's probably Jesus. I mean, you're going to get it, like, 80% of the time. And so, and the reason why, because Jesus is so great, it is true. But have you ever been a Sunday school teacher and you're like, okay, so how does salvation work? And they're telling you, well, how does this work? And they're telling you, and how does this work? And then they say something completely and totally absurd. And you just kind of slap your forehead and you're like, all right, let's start over. You ever been in that place before? So this is kind of the situation I see with Jesus. Jesus has done so many profound miracles, teaching like no one has ever heard before. He is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. He is God in a bod. Think that through he is the son of man and he's the only one that could say that he is not just the son of man he is the son of man person in the existence of humanity who could capitalize the the son of man he is son of man son of god he is every bit that he would be the greatest teacher you'd ever heard the greatest communicator you'd ever heard he was phenomenal in every way so much so The disciples of John the Baptist, some of them left John the Baptist and followed him. This guy is teaching the paint off the walls. Pharisees of Pharisees, the Sadducees are asking him questions. Religious leaders are following him. Huge crowds are amassing. He is really, really rocking this ministry and getting it done. And at the same time, his disciples can't seem to get it. They just can't seem to get it. And we'll pick up in the text that we just read. It says, they came and some people brought a man to heal him, Jesus, who begged him to touch him. It's interesting that this blind man, a blind person cannot, cannot get around very well. It doesn't take a lot of common sense to figure that out. When I was a little kid, I had some eye problems and they bit an eye patch on, which is just great when you're in third grade, right? A nice overweight third grader with an eye patch like that, you're just guaranteed to get pirate pick on every time you turn around. You know, thanks a lot for making my childhood easy. But I had an eye patch... And then I ended up getting injured in the other eye. So I had two eye patches, so it basically makes me blind for this very short period of time. And let me tell you how awkward that is to have sight and then not have sight. The things we take for granted. They lead, someone leads this blind man to Jesus because the blind man couldn't find Jesus alone. Someone had to bring him, and then they begged Jesus to touch him. There's a lot to be said here about who we should be bringing people to Jesus. We should want to bring people to Jesus and beg Him to touch them. Our prayer life should be filled with us pleading with Christ for the lost. If your prayer life is not filled with pleading for the lost, there is something wrong with your prayer life. This morning, my pleading was for the lost, and not just here, and not just at First Beaumont, but all around the world. Our prayer should be filled with pleading for the lost. Ironically, when people ask me something over and over and over again, it frustrates me, but that doesn't happen with God. In fact, he petitions us to petition him. He tells us to ask over and over again. He says, If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. We should be leading the the spiritually blind to Jesus and begging him to touch them. He goes on and he says, I love this. It says that taking the man who had been blind by the hand, he brought him out of the village. Could you imagine being led by Jesus by the hand out of the village? Like that touches my heart in a very, very neat, personal way. He leads him out of the village, and he says this, and after spitting in his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asks him, Do you see anything? I don't know about you, but I've never been spit in the face and thought it was a good thing. Culturally, we kind of look down on that, but Jesus gets to break up all the rules. So Jesus spits in the guy's eyes, I some immaturity issues because I'm a male, and most of us and ladies are laughing right now, like poking their husbands, right? We just really don't ever fully grow up, and all the ladies are shaking their head right now. And so like, did, did Jesus, like, I have the hardest time putting in contacts. Like I'm one of those people who just really can't make myself touch my eye. Like did Jesus have like put tooth? how, did, how do you spit in a guy's eye? like did he, was he ready for it? Did he just surprise him? Did he hold them open? Like, how does this work? Like, I'm thinking through the mechanics of this. Like, did he warn him? Like, I'm about to spit in your eye, you know? Kind of a weird medium of choice for a miracle, but it's Jesus, and he can do whatever he wants to do. And so, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And John, Jesus was there, and will be there, and always has been there, and created everything we know. So, what is it for him to fix some optic nerves? Not much. Why did he spit in the guy's eye? I don't know, right? That's above my pay grade. But he did, and he puts his hands on him and says, can you see? So he asked him, like, can you see anything? And he looked up and see people, for, and he says this, I see them like trees walking around. When I was a little kid, glasses, I was like, I have really, really, really bad, bad vision, hence the eye patch as a child. And I told my mom, I was like, hey, how do you know where to turn the car? She's like, what, what do you mean, how do I know where to turn the car? I mean, how, how do you? How do you know where to turn the car? It's just like, well, I see the signs. This was the moment where we realized I needed to go to the eye doctor. I didn't know. I thought there were just big green leaves on the tree. I thought that was normal. The weird thing about being born with a disability is you don't know it's a disability. The The oddity of being around something that smells bad all the time implies you don't smell it. I have a very good friend who's a principal of a school now, but while he was going to college, he ran a bulldozer at a uh, landfill. He says one day he realized he didn't smell it anymore. The irony is that we don't see how bad our sin is because we live in it all the time. We don't know how bad we stink because we stink all the time. This guy had been born blind and he didn't know much. He didn't say he was born blind, but he is blind. He doesn't know much different. And even with bad vision, he sees movement, but it's still not finished. This is one of the only miracles, if not the only miracle Jesus performs, that is more than one stage. It takes two steps. It's interesting, and it's, it's said only in Mark, only mentioned in Mark. He just sees them like trees walking around. Again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and he began to see everything clearly. Jesus lays his hands on this man's eyes, and he sees everything clearly. and He sent him and he sent him to his home saying, do not eat, do not even enter the village. Jesus spits in his eyes, puts his hands on him. Do you see anything? He says, it looks like people, like trees moving around. He has very bad vision. So it goes from blindness to bad vision. Jesus puts his hands on his eyes once more. And it says, the man sees clearly. Now, ironically, the man sees clearly through mortal eyes. Because think about this. God can see the telescope, the microscope, time, and everything linearly. like. Outside of time it is nothing for god to look at the expanse of the 70s right it's the furthest thing we've ever launched off our planet that's still going as voyager and that is nothing comparative to god first things ever lost left our solar system we want to throw a party about it solar system and spoken words in no time let there be was enough for him but with mortal vision this this individual now sees clearly this is not textually an accident, it's not just a miracle thrown in there for no reason. I think this says a whole lot about what Mark is trying to teach his audience, those who are reading. I think the Holy Spirit's teaching us today. And we see it again affirmed in Peter in just a moment, but I'll go ahead and bust the bubble for you. There's a lot of us that think we understand Jesus well that don't. We think we see clearly, but we don't. We think we get it, but we don't. of our natural lives on this side of heaven, gaining understanding of the depth of who Jesus is. We will never fully understand. I think we will get to heaven, and a lot of our big unanswered questions will be, like, answered in 10 seconds, and we'll be like, well, that was dumb. I think theologians, like my best friends with PhDs that I hang out with all the time, that sit there and debate all these subject matters with 45-syllable words, they always end with ology, you know. Everything ends with ology, ism or schism, and... I think we debate these great things, like we'll have these discussions about Calvinism and 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 what does that mean? And well, Calvin wasn't even a good Calvinist, right? And and then we'll be like, but we'll get there and we'll understand election. And we'll be like, oh, you mean God's just sovereign? Duh. I don't get how the Trinity works. That's way above my pay grade. What would you compare the Trinity to? There's nothing, there's no good example. We'll get there and we'll see it and we'll be in shock and awe and just worship God. They won't be preaching in heaven. I'm not needed. None of my skill sets, none of my functional skill sets are needed in heaven. And I'm glad because I get a resurrected body and I hope that means I get a good voice because we're going to sing in heaven. And I don't have a good voice. That's like killing cats. I'm very cautious about controlling my microphone and not just because I don't want to hear you hear someone pray. It's because I don't want you to hear me sing. And you don't want to either. You could not tune a sound system well enough to make this sound good. So get a hold of this. He brings him out. He heals him. And he says, don't go back into the village. It's very well telling anyone. And we're going to cover that in a minute. Great confession in 2027 in village of Jesus when I share the gospel with people, I generally choose locations like coffee shops, or like a picturesque moment. Um, I've gotten great photography. I worked for the National Park Service for a while. It's possible you've like literally seen some of my photography and sunset horseshoe bend these great beautiful sights. And I generally want to share the gospel there. I don't ju- one in the morning. Don't don't judge me. No, so I'm I'm picking, but I don't generally bring people to Las Vegas Strip. It's not where I think to share the gospel. This is what Jesus does, though. He brings his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is one of the most pagan places you could ever imagine. They worship, they literally have a temple where they worship Rome and Roman government and the Caesar of Rome. If you went today on a tour of Caesarea Philippi, you would see this wall and has all these niches carved into it where they would put idols. Just stacks and stacks of idols. They had a god named Pan, where we get the word panic from. It's not a friendly God. not something you want to be around. This is where Jesus brings his disciples. And on the way there, his disciples says to them, he says, who? Jesus asks them, who, who, who do people say that I am? And, the answer, and they told him, saying John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. This is weird, because Jesus actually spent time with John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Some of his disciples followed Jesus. So it's kind of weird that people think that Jesus is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we know the story of John the Baptist. He wore clothing and ate locusts and lived out in the wilderness. He was like the grizzly Adam, you know, wrestling bears and stuff, you know. Like the Old Spice commercial guy. And they don't seem to really be similar in that way way and he says some say elijah elijah is known for boldness and and strength and then at the same time kind of a softness and sometimes even a lent to depression a little bit and that isn't although jesus the boldness but it doesn't really seem like jesus and some texts will say jeremiah and jeremiah was the weeping prophet and i think what it really says is people are trying to figure out who jesus is and he is so much they can't encapsulate it easily see i've never met anyone like jesus before Never in my entire life. I'm still unpacking who Jesus is in my personal life and my theology and my Christology and my soteriology, all those ologies and isms and schisms, my understanding of salvation, my understanding of who Jesus is and his work in in this kingdom and his kingdom to come. And And then he asked the personal question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered to him, you are the Christ, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. This is very interesting. In Matthew, we get the same thing in Matthew chapter 16. And in this, in Matthew chapter 16, we have very, very intriguing. This is why most people teach the great confession out of Matthew. It says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, Peter, that knowledge did not come to you alone. God gave that to you. And that's an acknowledgement. Anyone in here who is a follower of Christ, be aware that we do not get to boast about our walk with Christ We did not come to that by our our own education. You did not come from that. You didn't study yourself into Christendom. You did not become so smart. I fear in North America, I told you I get to travel around the world quite a bit. Nepal, Philippines, South America, a lot of mission work. And I fear that in North America, we have so much, so many reasons in our head with information. And in reality, getting closer and there's nothing wrong with that but getting closer to god is filling your heart with this presence and your hands with his work and your to go out that we have to live it out that we live it out in our workplaces and in our schools that is the depth and the reality of it he tells them you are the christ and that means you are the savior you're the messiah you are the anointed one and he says to not tell anyone Again, in Matthew, we get a couple other details, and one of those details is this. Upon this rock I shall build my church. Not not Peter, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I wonder often as I sit in congregations, when I I get a lot of opportunity to meet congregations um, as an executive director of a disciple-making organization. And I ask them, what are you all about? And it always breaks my heart when they tell me about their social media process. And I love, there's nothing wrong with social media, but that's not what we're about. It breaks my heart when they tell me about all the programs they have going on. They, they pull out all the flyers, or we got this and that and that and this, and I'm like, hey, there's nothing wrong with, fe- I love a good festival, I love, I love a great opportunity to hang out and to fellowship, and I'm telling you, I'm all about potlucks. Don't think for one second, I was southern born and raised, okay? I'm at a congregation that's too big for potlucks, we just can't do it, we're too big, and it breaks my heart. Like, I need some good Southern Baptists like Betty Crocker, heart-stopping potluck every now and again. We have a small congregation that we visit from time to time because they have potlucks. (laughs) I'm like, I'll come preach anytime y'all want, you know? The reality of it is this. Like, we, we have a space and a place in which, what is it to be the church? And potlucks are not what the church does. We can do them, but it is not our business. That is not the core of who we are. What is the core of who you are as a church is the core is who you are as an individual. See, you're part of the church. People complain about the church. You've heard this, right? Maybe you've done it. I've done it. part of the church. Start doing it. It is as if to say that you're mad that your hand is not strong, but you're the thumb and you refuse to show up. I don't know any pastor any that if a spiritually sound person came in and said, I'd like to start this ministry, I'll do it, I just need a little help. Who he would be like, nah, we're not going to opportunity. I had a young man come to me recently and say, I want to start an apologetics ministry, and I want to read these books and do all this. And I'll, He'll probably have like, but great. Why would I say no to that? As a pastor and a pastor, what is the business of the church? He says, you are the Christ. And he began to teach them the Son of Man. Jesus begins to talk about all these things. He said he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And do you want to know who a good Jewish boy respected more than anything else? The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He says, you going to be rejected by them. And he's going to be killed. And after three days, rise from the dead. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This word rebuke, in the original language, is the same word we get for basically like when Jesus cast out demons. It is a severe word. And Peter rebukes him. And Matthew says, Lord, certainly not. Peter is basically saying, Jesus, I don't want you to do the reason you came to do what you came to do. I don't want you to do your work. I want you to do my work. I have a vision of what I want you to be, and you're not being it right now. In fact, Jesus even says that. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are Not setting your mind on God's purpose, but on man's. And I fear too often, we individually and we as the church, and I'm not here to pick on you, pick on me. I have intentions for God that are not God's intentions. I have have purposes that are good, but they're not the greater good. We only have so much resources, so much time, and so much energy, and so much activity to do. And how are we expending it? And I sit with congregations, and they tell me, this is what we're doing. And we have this big launch plan, and it's branded, and it's really well put together. And I am very attracted. I do web design and apps, and so I'm very attracted to branding and color consistency and all these things. But that is not the core concept of the church. Beautiful buildings are not the core. The early church met in homes. So the best worship services I've ever been in my life were in homes. No air conditioning under, under 10 shacks. I was in the, I was in the Philippines during when a mango hits a metal roof. That'll wake you up. I, I came out of my skin, and they didn't even budge, like they're so used to it. It's that random explosion that happened on this metal roof with this mango smacking it. But man, the worship service was incredible. No air It's the Philippines, there's no air conditioning, it's like 105 degrees and like 145% humidity. And I get that's not real, but it sure felt like it. I mean, it's basically like you got out of the shower and just put your clothes on, and then got back in the shower and then walked around. Just the moment I would open a door, it was like sweat. No air conditioning, no sound system, phenomenal worship service. People just on fire for the Lord. And we can be we're blessed to have what we have, but it's not our purpose. It's not our purpose. Upon this rock, I shall build my church. You are the Christ. And it's interesting, he warns them, just like he warns the blind man, don't go back into the village, don't tell anyone. And there's a lot of of theologians, a lot of Bible study individuals, a lot of learned men question this. And they say, well, Jesus is the holy hush. I really believe Jesus just doesn't want them to go give a bad representation, honestly. I really, honestly believe that Jesus, like Peter, you don't know me well enough yet, and your image of me is not refined enough yet. I would rather you learn more before you go preach more. I would rather your heart be right. I have seen countries all over the world where they are trying so hard to do American church, and they just don't have the resources. So so hard, but they were doing so well when they were under a tin roof out in the middle of the Amazon. But they felt like they needed projectors and sound systems and all this stuff. And this stuff's great. There's nothing wrong with it. Thank you, God, for the technology. And I I install and love these things. I was talking to your tech guy about your media and how you ran processes. But that is not who we are as the church. So what is our purpose as the church? What is it? Who do you say that I am? If you think that Jesus is about rituals and about tradition, then you will spend the entirety of your life as a believer attempting to preserve old buildings. You'll spend the entirety of your life defending the binding of a hymnal. And don't hear disrespect in this. I love history. People see a little bit younger. I'm really not that young. I'm a lot older than you probably think I am. They see this and they think, I got to write a 150-year history of our congregation. I got to be part of it. Dr. Steve Limke did the main writing. I spent three months on and off inside of a historical library, digging through, reading all the letters, all the... All the bylaws, all the minutes, 150 years worth of documents. Don't ever do that because it will have you affect your faith a little bit. 150 years is a lot of time to make some serious serious mistakes. But wasn't there? They they took these giant stained glass windows out, and they had a professional put them in crates and put them in an air-conditioned storage facility. They had to make the decision: was the building more important than the people? Were these stained glass windows more important than the people? If you think that Jesus' mission was tradition, then you will guard tradition with every heel, tooth and nail. And that was not Jesus' main mission. And there's nothing wrong with not There's nothing wrong with tradition. There's nothing wrong with good tradition. I was excited to be here this morning. We're a very modern congregation where I come from, and we have all the weird lights and stuff. And I don't think they've, we, I get a hymn like once every two years. You know, so I, I saw y'all's uh, bulletin, and I was like, "Woo! great worship experience. But tradition is not what Jesus came for. If the Jesus, if the Jesus vision you have, the version you have of Jesus, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? If that version of Jesus in your head, if your vision of him is education, you'll have a giant education wing, stacks of Sunday school curriculum since 1972, because we're Baptists, we can't throw anything away. You know that, right? Like I recently cleaned out some cabinets and you would thought like I had just literally like heretic. I was like, no one has seen this. I don't even know what this is, you know? It was falling apart at the seams and I take the history stuff down to Terrell Library and it makes everybody very happy because we get to preserve our history and it's not in our building. But I love these things, but hymnals are not it and history is not it and what are we supposed to be doing? Is education? And education's great. But that is not purely what Jesus came for. Jesus said he came to what? I came to seek and save the lost. The purpose. I was was in Romania a couple of years ago and I saw them heat up their baptistry with two, any electricians in here? You're going to die inside when I tell you this. Any safety guys in here? You're going to really die inside when I tell you this. They dropped a bare 220 wire in the water and plugged it up. I was like, well, that's how you go see Jesus right now. (laughs) It's like, do y'all, y'all don't don't do that with people in it, right? (laughs) That's how they heated up their baptistry. Why, why, why does God not take us straight out of the baptistry? Because there's a purpose for you. There's a meaning for your life. There's a direction for what you should be doing. Jesus came to what? Seek and save the lost. And he gave us marching orders in his great commission. And his great commission doesn't say, go therefore and preserve buildings. It doesn't say, go therefore and protect rituals and traditions. Some of those things are good and we should do them, but they're not the primary thing we should be doing. It doesn't say, go therefore and go on foreign mission trips all the time and don't pay attention to home. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, go therefore and pay attention to home and never go on a foreign mission trip. No, no. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is the marching orders of the church? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus is asking. Who do you say that I am? I'm going to share a little bit about myself. I came to faith as I was an atheist when I came to faith. I saw, raised in Southern Baptist tradition, a congregation that was not known by its love for one another. I saw a congregation that was known for politics and backbiting, they were rough. I saw a deacon punch another deacon in the face at a business meeting. That'll really, that really puts it in scope, doesn't it? So that's something we should be proud of. And fortunately, I know you're a pastor. I know that's not who you are. <laughs> Makes it easy to preach this. I know you are good, loving people. But I saw this and I thought, this is not the faith that I see in Scripture. I'd read the Bible and I was like, I don't see this in it, and thusly, God must not be real. And I walked away from faith about the age of 13. And God called me truly to faith, truly, truly to faith at 17, almost 18. My parents forced me to keep going to worship. I was the worst youth ministry. Youth ministers just hated me. You have an atheist in your youth ministry, that's that's a really bad space to be. Asking all the really dumb questions, like the really obnoxious stuff, the circular reason and all that. This is one of those situations who do you say that I am? And if you say that Jesus is a building, then we're in trouble. If you say that Jesus is just one thing, then we're kind of in a trouble. If you say that Jesus is all about summer camps, then we're in trouble. If you say Jesus is just about programs, then we're in trouble. None of those things are bad. But what is Jesus' purpose? To make disciples of all nations. And how do we do that? We share the gospel with everybody we're around all the time. As a follower of Christ, you want to know, there's a the very easy out, you know what the meaning of life is? For a believer, for a follower of Christ. The meaning of life. What is the purpose that you walked out of the baptistry and you still have a heartbeat right now? It's because you have a mission field right now. And it's with your grandkids and your children, it's in your home, it's in your workplaces. I don't know what you do for a living, but that's your mission field. Getting paid for it is just a byproduct. And you do it well so that you have a great testimony. And you share the gospel with everyone you are around, with your voice and your actions. You live it, you live out the good news in such a way that people cannot, cannot find fault in what you say. Your actions affirm your statements. And those few, hear this, nobody likes this piece. Those few who come to faith, because narrow is the gate and few will find it. Those few who come to faith, we don't just throw them in some classroom. Classrooms are good. Jesus had his 12, but he also had his three. He had his three as well. Those who was closest to So I have two college guys, I have a couple of pastor friends that I stay real close with. We invest in one another's life, we invest the gospel in another in spiritual disciplines and we grow in spiritual maturity together. How do you teach someone to obey all that Jesus commanded them? Can your pastor, if your pastor preached a sermon and then knocked on your door Monday morning to ask you about your sin life, you think you'd be back next Sunday? Probably not, right? Now imagine, though, that the guys that I disciple, I can talk to them about anything. Why? Because they've invited it into my life. Because we are dear to one another and we are close. We share the gospel with everyone, we live it, we affirm it, and then we invest in those who come to faith so they can grow in spiritual maturity and repeat the process. Who do you say that I am? So Jesus says, who do you say that I am? What did Jesus do? We need to live like Jesus lives. Too many of us, and too often, every one of us on some level are like that blind man. We are totally blind, he kind of heals us, but we we see it vaguely. If you think that this is church, and that this is what church is, you're missing the most beautiful piece of what it is to be the church. Keeping a pew warm is not the goal. It's good, but it's not the goal. Filling them up is good, but it's not the goal. Sharing the gospel, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Sharing the gospel and investing in those who come to faith, that is the goal. What what foundation is there? Go therefore and make disciples. How do you make disciples? You share the gospel. Baptizing them. We got that. We figured that out pretty well. We're Southern Baptists. We know how to baptize. It's in the name, right? I mean, you've got a big one right behind me. Baptism, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? We teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded them. And teaching in this way is not just intellectual. It's life experience. We do life together. We spend time together. We encourage one another. And we know known by our love for one another. This is the church. This is who is Jesus. Who do men say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And I encourage you as a congregation to think about that. I'm going to step down here in a moment. We're going to have an invitation. I encourage you that if you're here and you think, man, I've, I've not known Jesus in a personal way. I've not, I've not experienced that in a personal way. I don't have that kind of depth going on. I would encourage you to come forward, to pray with me. There's nothing magical about the prayer, but to come forward and do that. If you, if you are here today and you're a believer, you're a follower of Christ, you say, I haven't seen him clearly. I've seen, but I've seen clearly. I've not, not been the church I should be. Man, just have a chance to pray where you're at. The most beautiful thing about realizing, I always say this all the time, the most beautiful thing in my life is when I realize I'm wrong and I don't have to be wrong tomorrow. I spent almost 10 years of ministry doing big camp events, huge stuff, thousands of kids, that kind of stuff. and I thought that was ministry. And now i spend spent almost all of my time investing in just a few guys and a few pastors, and man, it's so much more profitable. And you think, how could that be more profitable? Exponential math. So if, I'm, if I can build up some guys that are really spiritually mature, then they can go build up more men that are spiritually mature, and it grows so much faster. See, it takes care of itself. It's God's work.